through 7. So hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of the life, which is in the paradise of God. As far as the reading, and pre- the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, we need your illuminating work to be done in us so that we don't just hear, but we hear and understand. And not just hearing and understanding, but we hear and understand and live in light of that it changes us that it becomes applied to our hearts and it shapes us so lord please by your spirit help us to have ears to hear this morning we pray this in jesus name amen well there are certain options you should never have to decide between because each option is equally important and there are certain choices you should never have to make because each choice is a very bad choice And allow me to illustrate with varying levels of significance. Here's a would you rather, kids. This is one of the favorite icebreaker games. Would you rather be on a team that wins every game, but you have to sit on the bench every play? Or would you be on a team that never wins, but you always get to play all the time? Which one? Or imagine that you're boarding the plane for a flight, and the captain stops you as you're boarding the plane and says, the plane's too heavy. Before we take off, you need to decide which wing of the plane we're going to keep, either the right wing or the left wing of the plane. It's all up to you. Let us know what you think. Or you're in the surgery prep room. You think it's just a standard procedure, and the surgeon comes in, and he says, I got good news and I got bad news. You get to keep your heart or your brain, but you can't keep both. So which one are we keeping? Which one are we getting rid of? Or let's say the elders of San Harbor call a congregational meeting. It's a special meeting. You're expecting it, and they give this announcement to the church. We realize that our church has been struggling with a lack of focus and direction. We really need to simplify and give our wholehearted attention to one thing and one thing only. So we're going to take a congregational vote right now over whether we should be a church that is doctrinally sound or loves God and other people. We're stretched too thin trying to do both, and so we're just going to pick one. So it's up to you, members of San Harbor. You don't want to have to make those choices. You don't want to have to decide between those options. If you're a patient awaiting a procedure, you should not have to decide if you get to keep your brain or your heart. And so a church should never have to decide between truth and love. The brain and the heart are vital organs. You cannot live without either one. You need both. And truth and love are the vital organs of the body of Christ. A church is not a living church if it does not have both. And yet for the church in Ephesus, they had made a choice without even realizing it. They had chosen 
Truth, but not love. And so they had so focused on that vital organ of truth, they were uncompromising their moral standards, they were precise in their doctrinal uh, beliefs, but they had neglected the equally essential vital organ of love. Their hearts were sick, they become cold and callous, and they were in danger of dying altogether as a church. And if we're not careful, we can subtly make a similar choice. We can neglect one vital organ for the sake of the other. And so this is what Jesus wants his church to hear this morning. A passion for moral and doctrinal purity is absolutely vital. But if it is disconnected from love for the Lord and others, it is fatal. You can have all the doctrinal and moral precision you want. You could win the culture war. You could have the best doctrinal standards, and we do. But if you do not have love for the Lord and others, it is empty and meaningless and vain and fatal. So let's begin to look at this letter. And as we do, let's first start by considering what is this specific church that Jesus is addressing? So you look there at verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So through this angelic messenger, he writes this message to this specific church. And it's the church in Ephesus. When you're selecting plants at a store to plant in your house, you analyze things like, what kind of soil does this plant need? What kind of setting and situation, what kind of spot in my yard does this plant need to thrive and grow? Well, the church in Ephesus was like a plant that was called to thrive and grow in an environment that was anything but conducive to thriving and growing. This was soil in which you would think no seeds are going to grow on this soil because the culture, the cultural soil of Ephesus was downright hostile to the gospel. And you can read in Acts 19 about the first scattering of gospel seeds in, in Ephesus. So Paul goes there on one of his missionary journeys and he scatters seeds in Ephesus in Acts 19. And you see in that chapter that the soil of Ephesus was filled with pluralism, paganism, and moral perversion. That's the soil in which the seeds of the gospel were scattered and called to thrive and grow. Pluralism means that Ephesus was a place in which people affirmed all gods and all religions as equally valid and that no one god or no one religion had more of a claim on the truth than the other. So in Acts 19.26, there's a riot that breaks out. And Paul is brought before the political council there. And this was the charge against him. Says, the people say this, You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without hands are not gods. They're happy to worship gods. But they were not willing to tolerate someone who would not tolerate their tolerance of everything. That's what they were intolerant about. They were, they were people who would tolerate everything except a person who wouldn't tolerate their tolerance of everything. Does that sound familiar at all? Paganism meant that Ephesus was a place that dwelt in the shadow of one of the great wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the goddess Artemis. So in pagan religions, the general belief was that various gods were in charge of various forms and aspects and areas of life. And in order to have blessing in that area and aspect of life, you had to pay respect and homage and rituals to that specific god or goddess who was over that area. And if you did not, you would expect blessing and curse, or you expect curse and harm to come to you in that area. Well, Artemis was 
the goddess over this region. And everyone believed that the society, the well-being of their homes, their family, their cows, their children, whatever, was based off how well you paid homage to this goddess. And apparently this goddess was very needy and had very low self-esteem because here's the charge that was brought against Paul and those who were converting to Christ in Acts 19, 27, and 28. It says, and there is danger that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may end up as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, meaning she might lose her glory and grandeur if people stop worshiping her. When they heard this, the people were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Makes me think of that line in Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape says that the, the father wants sons who will love him. We want cattle that we can feed on. He is full and flows over. We are empty and need to be filled. And Artemis apparently had a low self-esteem and needed a lot of help. Well, there was also moral perversion. And it, it meant that Ephesus was a place in which all kinds of immoral and sensual behaviors were not only permitted, but they were celebrated and promoted as religious practices, as good for society. And all of them were directly opposed to biblical moral standards. So the soil in which the church was called to grow and thrive was not only difficult, it was polluted with toxins all over the place. And yet in spite of the toxic and hostile soil in Ephesus, this is what we read about the gospel in Acts 19.20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There is a church in Ephesus, despite the fact that the soil is toxic and polluted because God blessed the scattering of the seeds and caused it to grow and increase and prevail mightily. So as the church, we should be encouraged that no matter the condition of the cultural soil, God is able to bless the scattering of gospel seeds. It's so easy for us to get discouraged. We look around and we think hearts are too hard. The culture is, is too hostile. The, the things of this world are too tempting. And yet the Lord says, keep scattering. Keep scattering. My gospel seeds can grow anywhere. Just watch me work. Look at Ephesus. Well, as we move forward in our passage, notice the unique way in which Jesus identifies himself to this church. So look at the second half of verse 1 of Revelation 2. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So each of these seven letters kind of has a similar pattern and flow. They all start with Jesus addressing the church, then identifying himself with a reflection back to one of the images from the vision in Revelation 1. And each of these descriptions is somewhat uniquely tailored to the struggles and strengths and shortcomings of that specific church to which he's writing. All truth is always relevant, but there, there are some truths about who Jesus is that each church at different times needs to uniquely hear and, and have it pressed on their minds and hearts. So Jesus reminds them that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, a picture of the church. And in holding them in his right hand, Jesus is saying, I am in charge of the church. I've got the church in my hands. I am the one who's in authority over it. The church is never at the mercy of hostile cultural forces. No matter what you might see by the eyes of sight, the eyes of faith say Jesus holds the church in his hand. He's in charge of it. It is in his sovereign hands. In addition to that, Jesus reminds the church that he walks among them. 
This language implies fellowship, implies nearness. Just, just as God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, or Jesus walked in the temple, as it were, among the people of Israel. God is in fellowship with. He is near to his people. We do not serve a distant and detached king who says, you're on your own. Best of luck to you. He's always present. He is always active. He's always among the church. There's no worship service that he does not attend. There's no prayer meeting that he's not present at. There's no Bible study that he is not there. There's no action that the church takes that he doesn't evaluate and know about. He is always in and among his church. And at times when our love for Christ is growing cold or the cultural current feels very strong, we can feel distant from him or that he's distant from us. And yet we need to be reminded that despite our feelings of distance, whichever direction they go, Christ will never retract his promise that he gave at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He will never leave us or forsake us. Well, Jesus now addresses the church in Ephesus directly. He's speaking to them as this letter carrier is reading this letter. They're hearing the words of Jesus spoken to them. And he starts by commending them for three marks of maturity that they are demonstrating. The first mark is that Jesus encourages them for continuing to labor patiently in a harsh environment, that they are enduring patiently in the most harsh environment. Look at the beginning of verse two. It says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And then jump down to verse three. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So all that language that Jesus uses makes me think of a hardworking, diligent farmer who rises early every morning to go and tend to his fields. I don't, I don't know of a, probably a harder manual labor job than having to tend to a farm. I don't know manual labor at all, but I'm, I'm sure that that one is probably difficult. <laughs> so every morning, this farmer doesn't hit a snooze button, even though his back is aching from the day before. He doesn't let the rock hard soil that he's having to deal with this year stop him from putting his hand to the plow and tilling that soil over and over again. There hasn't been much rain and it doesn't seem like it's coming in the forecast, but he keeps planting, he keeps tilling, he keeps cultivating over and over. His neighbors question him. Some even laugh at him because they've given up their farms long ago and sold it to developers in Jupiter, but he's got a job to do and he's not going to stop until that job is done despite all opposition. What Jesus is saying here to this church, laboring in this harsh environment, is that the Lord loves faithful, diligent laborers who keep on keeping on. So many times we can be pragmatic and think, if I'm not seeing immediate, definite results, then I'm just wasting my time. They're struggling with seeing good results, but they're continuing to labor. Jesus said, I love your diligent labor. You keep enduring patiently. So I say this to you, to those of you who are laboring diligently, to those of you who are keep on keeping on, you need to hear Jesus say to you this morning, continue. Be encouraged that Jesus knows your diligent labor. None of your labors escape his notice. All your work in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, in whatever, none of that escapes his notice. Even if it escapes the notice of others and is unappreciated by others, it does not escape the notice of the Lord. One day, you will hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. So let the echoes of that ringing here today continue to press you on to, to continue to diligently labor. But maybe some of you are growing weary. 
You're, you're, you're tired of the tough soil. You're, you're tired of no rain. And so the call to you today is, is press on. Do not stop laboring. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Do not grow weary in doing good for in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. The grace of God works. It works, but sadly it often works very slowly. It's not on our timetable. We think we're patient. God is much more patient. So keep your hand to the plow. Do not look back. The God who is for you and the spirit who is in you is far greater than all the cultural external circumstances that may be against you. So labor diligently. Well, second, Jesus commands this church for rejecting moral compromise. They reject moral compromise. Look at the second half of verse two. So after he commends them for their toil and labor, he says this, you cannot bear with those who are evil. And then jump down to verse six. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's a group that's going to come up in a later letter, so I'm not going to address it now, but just know that it is a, was a Christian group that was promoting immoral practices. That's all you need to know. Well, like the Ephesians, we are trying to swim upstream against a very strong current. And you could name the current tolerance. Tolerance used to mean that you understand that not everybody believes the same things you do and practices the same things you do. And at times, you have to respectfully agree to disagree. That's what tolerance used to mean. But that's not what it means today. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Tolerance means that not only are you not allowed to disagree with other people's opinions, practices, beliefs, or whatever, you must celebrate them and approve them and wear stickers about them or you're a bigot. That's what tolerance has become. And what Jesus says here flies in the face of all of the new definitions of tolerance. Jesus does not tolerate the new definition of tolerance. In fact, he hates it. There are some things that Jesus hates, and one of them is moral compromise and moral perversion. You may have in in your mind the idea of Jesus as a soft teddy bear that kind of loves and approves everyone, and it's kind of like that tickle me elmo that you squeeze in and it says something positive. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. There are standards he has. There are things he hates because there are standards he has. And one of the things that Jesus hates is moral compromise and moral perversion, which means he loves when we hate what he hates. In the right ways, in the right tone and temper. Because our objective moral standard is not licking our fingers and holding up to the wind and waves of culture. That is not our objective moral standard. It is the word of God and the word of God alone. God's word is the true north by which you must set your moral compass. It is the only true north by which you can set your moral compass. And yet you must be continually coming back to the word of God over and over again because there is magnetic interference everywhere with our moral compasses coming from the culture, telling us all sorts of things that misdirect and seek to compromise the standards that God has. But you might think, well, they're so sincere. They're so sincere, how could they be wrong? Flat earth proponents are very sincere, okay? And they're very wrong. Sincerity does not equal truth, okay? I tell my kids all the time, you may think you cleaned your room. It's not clean. I don't care how much you think you did. 
But what about love is love, right? Isn't isn't just love love? No. God is love, which means he is the source of love. He's the standard of love. He is the one who defines love. And if any definition of love does not align with his definition of love, it's not love. It's perversion. No matter what we may think. But everyone else seems to think it's no big deal. Everybody else is doing it. And the people in Noah's day didn't think they needed to make a boat either. They didn't think it was going to rain. Noah stood alone as a man of righteousness. But when he stood alone with God, against everyone else, he was still in the majority. Because he stood with God. Even if you stand alone on the word of God, you are still standing on the only stable, the only solid, the only durable ground in this world. All other ground is sinking sand, no matter how much other people are standing on that ground. And so he commends them for not compromising morally. And then thirdly, Jesus encourages them for testing and scrutinizing all doctrinal teaching. So look at the last part of verse 2 in in Revelation 2. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So in our day, the saying goes, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Maybe some of you need to hear that today. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Well, the equivalent for their day was don't believe everyone who calls themselves an apostle. Don't believe everything someone who says an apostle teaches you. So just before Paul departed from Ephesus, so he, he went, scattered the seeds, the church grew. He comes back. He stays with them for two years, teaching them day in and day out the whole counsel of God's word. He's addressing the elders of the church of Ephesus. And here's the last thing he says to them before he departs. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So the last thing Paul wants to leave to the church of Ephesus is false teaching is coming. A storm is coming. And it's a subtle storm too, because it's going to come from among your own ranks. It's not just an out there problem. It's sometimes an in here problem. And Paul was right. It came and the church took it to heart. They were on the alert. They were guarding God's word. Every teaching was tested and evaluated under the light of God's word. It was not, how did this make me feel? It was not, will this work? Will this, you know, is, will these five steps improve my life? This was, no, is this grounded in the word of God? And if it's not, they rejected it. They knew that someone who claims to teach God's word or to be a teacher of God's word or an authoritative expert on it should only be believed and followed insofar as what they say actually lines up with God's word. Your responsibility as a member of this church, Christian, is to listen to me or anyone up here only insofar as what we say lines up with God's word. Anything we say that's wrong with God's word, you reject it. Doesn't care how, you shouldn't care about my feelings, okay? You just reject it if it's wrong. But if what I say lines with God's word, then we would honor it, to obey it, go in line with it. Well, J.C. Ryle helps us ask a very good question. What is the best safeguard against false teaching? What is the best safeguard against false teaching? Beyond all doubt, it is the regular study of the word of God. It is the neglect of the Bible, which makes so many a prey to false teachers. You, you think of like a lion hunting on one of those nature programs. What does a lion look for? They look for the weak 
They look for the slow. They look for the one who's kind of lagging behind, the one who's kind of isolated from the group. That's who they're going to go after. What does a false teacher look for? Someone who's ignorant, kind of open to anything, gullible, isn't in the word, in deep, sound teaching. Nothing supplies false teachers with followers so much as spiritual sloth and doctrinal laziness. There's a reason why so-called pastors and evangelists on television are on television when they shouldn't be because of spiritual sloth and doctrinal laziness. We need to care deeply about the truth. Doctrinal indifference. You know, truth divides, love unites. That is not something to be proud of. That is something to repent of. We need to care about doctrine. We need to care about truth. We need to dot our I's and cross our T's because we're called to contend for the truth. We're called to be on guard against the truth, to preserve it. How can you do that if you don't know it? How can you contend for something that you don't know? How can you guard the truth if you don't know why you believe what you believe? So if we're going to remain steadfast amidst all the cultural currents, if we're going to remain steadfast against all the subtle temptations to false teaching that are going to rise and they're going to come, we need to continually deepen our root systems in the word of God with this beautiful royal palm tree in our backyard. And it stands up and we have this banana tree next to the royal palm. And 45 mile per hour winds came Thursday night. Banana tree's down. Royal palm is standing strong. Poor banana tree. But royal palms are called royal palms because they have elaborate, intricate, deep root systems that shoot out all these different roots and they grab the soil really tightly so they stand firm. Be a royal palm, not a banana tree, okay? (laughs) Now, I'm not going to say that you need to have the doctrinal depth and clarity that a Mike Bruce has. But you should at least have him on speed dial, okay? That is, that's a good phone number to have. So here's some, here's some food for application to, to help you grow your root system of truth. What biblical questions do I need to dig into? What are some questions you've been asking, but you just kind of move on and, and you don't study it, dig into it? What are some doctrinal theological topics that I need to study up on? I've heard those terms or you know, someone mentioned that word, but... You know, just forget. What what should you be studying up on? Or what objections to the Christian faith do you need to have a ready defense for? What are some charges against Christianity you've heard that you say, you know what, I need to know why I believe what I believe and how to defend what I believe. That's how you grow your root system. And once you have a thought or an answer to one of those questions, I'd be happy to write you a syllabus and give you assignments and all those sorts of things. Jesus loves when his church loves the truth. Because a passion for moral and doctrinal purity is vital. It's vital. But if it is detached from love, it is nothing. It is empty. It is vain. It is fatal. Listen to Jesus' rebuke in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then he goes on to say, remember... Repent. If not, I'm going to snuff out your lampstand. He is not mincing words here. Now, before we consider what Jesus does say, consider what he, he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, the reason you love so little is because you care too much about the truth. You could do with a little less concern for the truth and a little more concern for love. A, a commitment to truth and love is not a zero-sum game. It's like if you give 51% to the truth, you can only give 49% to love. That's not the case here. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're both there, both essential. Jesus doesn't say, you know, guys, I appreciate the doctrine and stuff. It's, it's good. I just don't care so much about that as much as I care about love. He's not putting them on a status or priority level. A commitment to truth is a vital organ, and a commitment to love is a vital organ. A commitment to truth is not like your lung or your kidney. It's good to have, but you can live without it, right? The head and the heart of the body of Christ are a love for truth and a love for others. We need both. The problem with the church in Ephesus is that they had neglected the heart as a vital organ. They were busy tending the head, and the chambers of their heart had become calloused, hard, and they were in danger of becoming completely blocked and dying. And so Jesus says, you have abandoned the love you had at first, or some, your translation might say, your first love. What love is Jesus referring to? Does he mean love in an upward sense, a love for God, a love for the Savior? Or does he mean love in an inward sense, a love for the family of God, a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or still yet, does he mean love in an outward sense, a love for the lost, a desire to seek and save those who don't know Christ? If you were to read the commentaries I read, you'd find one or all of those options represented throughout the commentaries. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the, the preaching cop-out and say, yes, yes, it is all of them. I think Jesus' rebuke, has in his sights all three of those senses of love, the upward, the inward, and the outward, because though they are distinct loves, they are not disconnected. A love for God demonstrates itself, what? In a love for others. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And loving your neighbor in the church next to you is like also an extension then that goes out to love those who are outside the walls of the church. The healthy Christian heart should be filled with love and affectionate, a godly affection that bears fruit in godly action. That's what love is, biblically speaking. It's, it's a noun and it's a verb. Godly affection that bears fruit in godly action. And the Christian heart that is filled with this love has three chambers, you can think of it. One chamber goes upward, one goes inward to the body of Christ, one goes outward to those who don't know Christ. And so when we first understand and embrace the truth of the gospel, this is what happens. It, fills and injects and inflates the love, the heart with love. When you, when you sing those words, what, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts that there's some. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins there are many, his mercy is more. When you understand and embrace that for the first time, your heart is filled with love that shoots upward. and says, Lord, you love me first. So I want to love you and I want to glorify you in all that I do. That's a healthy Christian heart. But it doesn't stop there because next, that love starts pumping inward. It says, Christ, as you have brought me into this family, I want to love the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have placed me around. Because how can I love God but not love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Then the love starts pumping outward. Lord, as you have sought me and saved me from my sin, help me to love and seek and save the lost. Let me be an instrument of that. That's what it ought to be like. The truth of God should fill our heads and form our minds, convince us, and then fill our hearts with love that goes upward, inward, and outward. That's how it should go. But I'm guessing that's not how it always goes for you. 
Sadly, the common experience of the Christian is that there is a serious clog somewhere between here and here. You know, it doesn't matter where it is, but there's a clog somewhere. And the spiritual veins that are connecting the head to the heart aren't always working as they should be. The truths that we ponder, profess, and defend, and debate about get stuck somewhere between here and here, causing our hearts to grow cold and calloused and even critical. Perhaps that best describes you today. And so you need to ask yourself, what is causing the clogs and stopping the truth in my head from making its way all the way down into my heart and bursting forth in love? Has God become an impersonal study subject? Have you been content knowing about God rather than knowing God personally? Have you become impatient and critical toward other believers because they aren't as mature and as astute as you are, Jesus' star student? Have you become bitter and resentful because maybe a fellow Christian sinned against you and now you keep everyone at a distance because you're never going to let that happen to you again? Have you forgotten that Jesus calls us to forgive as we have been forgiven? And the sins against us, however great they are, will never equal the sins we've committed against him. And he's forgiven us, so how can we not also forgive one another? Or how about an outward love? Have you stopped believing that God has the power to change the hardest, darkest, most callous, most frustrating heart you've ever bumped up against, even though it may not seem like it to you? Have you forgotten that in your case, grace is amazing. In fact, it's a miracle. Some of your cases, it's extra amazing. And that same grace that saved you can save others as well. Or have you become ashamed of the gospel and made it your life mission to blend in as much as possible and not be found out? Because you're embarrassed. Have you forgotten that the most loving thing you can do for another person is tell them that they have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for their need? Or is there no room for upward, inward, outward love of any kind because your heart is so full of love for me, myself, and I? There is a displacing effect with the love of God. It comes in and it pushes other things out as much as itself pushes out into our life. It pushes out a self-centered, sin-saturated love. But the reverse is the case as well. Well, if you answered yes to any one of those questions, then you need to listen to Jesus' call to action in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, repent, and restore. That's Jesus' instructions to you today. Remember, when you used to have such a sense of the sweetness of the Lord's grace and mercy to you, how it had this fresh sweetness in your soul that you you loved it and cherished it and reading your Bible and praying was not a chore, but it was something that was easy, that you delighted to do. If that used to be you, ask the Lord to restore that today. Ask the Lord to remove any critical spirit, any root of bitterness, any thoughts that, yeah, I can do this by myself, I don't need anyone else and to restore to you the joy of fellowship and communion with the saints. Did you used to keep a list of people that you regularly prayed for, who who didn't know Christ, that you wanted to see come to Christ, that you were sharing the gospel with? Well, today is a good day to restore that practice once again. 
I don't, I don't know what it is for you, but maybe there's, you can say, you know what? It's not like it used to be. It used to be sweeter. Remember that and turn from that and restore the things that you used to do at first. If the lampstand of our church is going to continue to shine and even shine brighter than it's shining now, we must have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to the church. A passion for moral and doctrinal purity is vital for you. But if it is disconnected from love, it is fatal. You must truth and love. Let me close with this. To encourage and motivate us in our pursuit of truth and love, Jesus gives this promise. He ends each letter with a promise. Look at verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he's remembering Eden. And in the original paradise of God, everything was as it should be. God dwelt in harmony with man. Man dwelt in harmony with God. And man and woman dwelt in harmony with one another. Truth reigned. Love filled the place. And it was wonderful. But we don't live there anymore. We live east of Eden, right? And we are in a place where we're constantly battling for the truth, where we are constantly fighting against lovelessness in our own hearts, a a callous coldness in our own hearts. And it is a wearisome, toiling battle that often makes us just want to throw up our hands and say, what's the point? So Jesus says, be patient and endure because one day I'm going to make all things new and I'm going to restore things even better than Eden. And in that place, you won't have to battle for the truth anymore because you will get to fellowship with the one who is the truth, whose truth reigns uncontested. And fight against lovelessness because one day you'll be in the place where all things will once again exist in the perfect harmony and peace and relationship that they should be right now. And so in light of that day, continue to fight against lovelessness and to pour yourself out in love to God and others. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, would you turn with me to page eight of your bulletin? So we close the sermon with the, the ending liturgy of the book of Revelation. Look at the bottom of page eight, this responsive conclusion. I'll read the words in italics, respond with the words in bold. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come, Come, Lord Lord Jesus. Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray.